and we're and you're in the studying the Bible um, series, you can go ahead and exit with me as we go to activity room number one. Brother Andy. Good evening. All right, I'm on. I hope everyone is doing well this evening. Um, we are, as uh, Brother Aaron mentioned, we're continuing our study in Paul Tripp's book, The War of Words, and I hope you picked up a copy. This is what it looks like, and I uh, hope you've been following along. Tonight, we're in chapter two, which is titled Satan Speaks, and um, I'm going to uh, agree with uh, a little bit of sentiment that Kendall shared last week. Uh, it's been over two years since I've spoken in front of a group of adults. Uh, and so if I'm a little rusty or if, uh, if I stick to my notes a little too closely or stumble over a few too many words, I just ask for your grace and uh, pray that we hope all, we come out of this a little wiser with, our, with the way we use our words. So last week, uh, Kendall did what I thought was an excellent job showing us how our words are the foundational uh, building blocks of communication with one another and with God. And uh, these are words that, without which we cannot build relationships. And we see that we saw then that God created words. He was the first one to speak, and he was the first one, uh, or he spoke he, the world and humanity into existence. And uh, because of that, God has a standard and uh, design to which our words must measure up. And failure to communicate in the way which God designed is simply nothing more than sin. And uh, we're going to see tonight that that sin can have a deadly impact. And I have an example of that for you, all the way from 1899. Uh, this is a story, as the story goes, there are four reporters from Denver, Colorado, who met by chance on a Saturday night in a Denver railroad station. Al Stevens, Jack Tornay, John Lewis, and Hal Wilshire worked for the four Denver newspapers, the Post, the Times, the Republican, and the Rocky Mountain News. Each had the unenviable task of finding a scoop for the Sunday edition, and they hoped to spot a visiting celebrity arriving that evening by train. However, no one showed up. So the reporters wondered what on earth they would do. This, their jobs are on the line now. And as they discussed their options in a nearby saloon, Al suggested that they make up a story. And the other three laughed at first, but before long, they all agreed that they would come up with such a whopper of a story that no one would question it, and their respective editors would congratulate them on their find. Now, a phony local story would be too obvious, so they decided to write about someplace far away. And they agreed on all places, China. And they said, what if we say that, if, that some American engineers on their way to China told us that they are bidding on a major job? The Chinese government is planning to demolish the Great Wall. Now, Harold was not sure that this story would be believable. I mean, why would the Chinese ever tear down the Great Wall of China? They agreed that it would be as a sign of international goodwill to invite foreign trade. And so by 11 p.m., the four reporters had worked out the details. And the next day, all four Denver newspapers carried the story on the front page. The Times headline that Sunday read, The Great Wall of China is doomed. Peking seeks world trade. Now, of course, the story is a ridiculous tall tale made up by four opportunistic newsmen in a hotel bar, but amazingly, their story was taken seriously, and it soon ran in newspapers in the eastern U.S. and even abroad. 
when the citizens of China heard that the Americans were sending a demolition crew to dismantle their Great Wall, most of them were indignant, even enraged. Particularly angry were members of a secret society made up of Chinese patriots who were already against any kind of foreign intervention. Moved into action by the news story, they attacked the foreign embassies in Peking and murdered hundreds of missionaries from abroad. In the next two months, 12,000 troops from six countries working together invaded China to protect their countrymen. And the bloodshed at that time, born out of a journalistic hoax that was fabricated in a saloon in Denver, was a time of violence ever known, ever, known ever since as the Boxer Rebellion. Now, I share this story with you just to illustrate how deadly our words can be when we use them in a selfish manner. And that's exactly what happened here. These men thought of no one but themselves, and their lie resulted in the loss of hundreds, if not thousands, of lives. Now, I'm sure that it's unlikely many of us, if any, will have such an impact on a global scale, but our words can have an equally deadly impact on a people within our own sphere of influence. If we're at all transparently honest, we're going to recognize that we do have a war raging in the way we communicate with one another. But why? Where did it all start? Why does it cause so much damage? And what choice do we have in this fight? Let's consider now the beginning of the war of words and how it all started. Our home tonight is in Genesis chapter 3 where mankind entered the war of words, but before we settle in there, I want to recognize that the, the story of the fall of man actually has a prequel, and it's the fall of Lucifer. You see, Satan was not always evil. He was known as Lucifer, which means star of the morning, and he was created by God to be God's most powerful and most beautiful angel. But as one theologian explains it, Lucifer became so impressed by his own beauty, intelligence, power, and position that he began to desire for himself the honor and glory that belonged to God alone. Listen to one account of his fall found in Isaiah chapter 14, starting in verse 12. The Lord says, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground. You who weaken the nations, for you have said in your heart that I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, and I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. You see, Satan's sin was out of his own self-generated pride, but when he failed to usurp God's throne, he set his sights on disrupting God's design for mankind and the war of words has been raging ever since. So let's turn now to Genesis chapter 3 and see exactly how all of this unfolds. It says, now the serpent, starting in verse 1, was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desiring to make 
wine wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And when they heard that the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I knew I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So this is where the war of words begins. What's interesting about the story in Genesis 3 is that Satan tempts Adam and Eve in the exact same way that he fell. Perhaps it's because he knew from his own personal experience how to sever a relationship with God. Nonetheless, there's some striking similarities that I'd like to point out. First, before each fall, there's absolute perfection. Lucifer was perfect in beauty, perfect in power, and perfect in position, but it wasn't enough. Likewise, Adam and Eve, they were in perfect paradise, in perfect harmony, and in perfect communion with God and each other. But as Paul Tripp says, every word spoken was consistent with God's standard and design. There was no sin of talk, but it wasn't enough. Next, we see that the crux of each fall is the desire to be like God. Notice how in chapter 14 of Isaiah, Satan says to himself that I will be like the Most High. This is referring to God. Then Satan says to Eve that if she eats of the tree in Genesis chapter 3, she will be like God. And thirdly, we see there is no fear of God. In both accounts, there is no fear, no reverence, no regard for God, only interest in self-elevation. But one thing that we cannot miss is the real birthplace of this war. It's not what we think. It's not heaven. It's not in the garden. It's in the heart. If you look back at Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13, it says, For you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven and I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Satan's sin began in his heart. And then he took action. Then look at Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was desirable, that's a key word, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. David says in Psalm verse, chapter 37, verse 4, to delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So from David's words, we understand that desire comes from the heart. And so we see also, just like Satan, Adam and Eve's problem in the garden began in their heart. Paul Tripp has authored several books, uh, including one that he co-authored titled How People Change. And the main idea of this book is relatively simple. Uh, it uh, shows how people seem to always think that if they can just change their circumstances in their lives, uh, that their lives will be better. But Paul shows us in that book that lasting change only comes from changing the heart. Changing circumstances might bring temporary change in your life, but lasting change only comes from the heart. Hopefully we notice that that's what happened with Satan, Adam, and Eve. They all said that if I can just be like God, life will be better than it is now. 
They believed that if they could just change their circumstances, things would be better. But they believed in a lie. Their sin didn't begin in their circumstances. It didn't begin in heaven or in the garden. It began in their hearts. And that's where the war of words begins as well. But next, let's find out, let's, let's try to answer and, and talk about the damage from the war of words. We've seen by now words that words, when used wrongly, can cause severe damage to relationships. I mean, no doubt there was strain between the United States and China after the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, there's a relationship in the extended portion of my own family that severely, uh, if not irreparably damaged uh, from a lifetime of wrongly used words on both sides. Uh, and certainly we see here in uh, Genesis chapter 3 that the relationship between God and man is catastrophically damaged. Sin has now entered the world and created an insurmountable void uh, between us and God. But how did the events of Genesis chapter 3 cause so much devastating damage? Well, first we see that God's authority is challenged. And the way Paul Tripp explains it, he says, We speak as if we were God rather than his creatures, called to submit to his authority in every idle word we speak. In our sinful state, it's natural for us to want to be the gods of our own little worlds, to be the ones that are setting the rules and calling the shots and dishing out the commands. But that's not the way that God designed us. Let me give you an illustration. So imagine if we let our children be the authority figures in our house instead of the parents. That would go well, right? Uh, it sounds funny, but some people actually do. The problem with this is that kids do not know what's best for them. Children do not know to look both ways before crossing the street. They do not know the right foods to eat so that they can grow healthy. They do not know which internet sites are safe and which ones are not. They do not know the value of hard work. And that is not how God designed the parent-child relationship to be. If you don't believe me, just listen to a few of these passages from Proverbs. In chapter 22, verse 6, Solomon says to train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Chapter 29, verse 15, he says, The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. And in chapter 22, verse 15, it says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. The point here is that it is, it is by God's design that children are to be submissive to the authority of their parents because it is the parent's responsibility to teach the children how to live so that when they become adults, they know how to take care of themselves, they know how to become uh, productive members of society, and hopefully they've been shown how to follow Jesus Christ. Likewise, it's, got, it's by God's design that we are be submissive to the authority of God because it is God's responsibility to teach us how to live as Christians so that as we mature spiritually, we'll be, we will become more like him. That's the whole purpose of the Bible, so that we can learn how to be reconciled to him. That was the whole point of giving the Israelites the Ten Commandments shortly after their exodus from Egypt. When you think about it, Jacob's descendants had been in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. When they left Egypt, they were like newborn babes. They were truly a newborn nation. 
They had no idea how to live and thrive as a nation, and they proved that time and time again when they were going through the desert. So it was necessary for God to give them instruction on how to live and operate in a way that meets his design for them and they can thrive as a nation. And we need that instruction also. We need God's word. Without it, we will never know how to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, and we will never grow more into his likeness. But in this moment in the garden, Adam and Eve showed that in their hearts, they didn't believe they needed God. They allowed themselves to believe they could do it on their own without God. And in that moment, they demonstrated foolishness rather than the wisdom they were seeking. Next, we see that damage is caused by, or damage is caused when God's word is questioned. Now, in our day, there's countless inter in interpretations of the meaning of life and what we need in life to fulfill our purpose on this world. We live in a time where it's acceptable to live on the basis of, well, if I believe that it's true, then it must be true. We live in a world where truth is now based on feelings, which change as often as the winds, instead of God's word, which is unchanging. And this has dramatic impact on our communication. Paul Tripp says that it comes down to the interpretation of the facts, that our word problems are often interpretation problems. That we do not say the right thing because we do not believe the right thing. And I think Adam and Eve's example shows us that it can also be said that we do not listen to the right person. And that we may often heed the counsel of wicked people. And here's what I mean. If we back up to Genesis chapter 2 verse 16. We see that God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you, you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, did you hear that? God said of every tree you may freely eat except one. Yet Satan slithers into the garden and the first words out of his lips are, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree in the his question is in exact contradiction to God's word. God didn't say that at all. Yet now Satan has Adam and Eve questioning whether they even heard God correctly and questioning his faithfulness to them. And after all, if Satan is right and they did hear God wrong and God did tell them not to eat of any tree, then he's really a cruel God who's condemned them to starvation. I'm sure these are the kinds of thoughts that are now racing through their minds that, well, if we can't trust God that really we need to be like God and eat this fruit so that we'll be wise enough to take care of ourselves. But Satan doesn't stop there. He goes on to flat out accuse God of lying to them. Where God said in Genesis 2 that if they eat of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, they will surely die. Satan comes back and says, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan essentially says, not only will they not die, but they'll be just as wise as God and able to care for themselves. His, 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 his answer, he's answering the concern of, that he's planted in their hearts. And it's in these two swift strokes that the relationship between God and mankind crumbles. And the very thing that God warns them about comes to pass because they trusted Satan over God. If you look at Genesis chapter 5, verse 5, it says, so all the days of Adam lived, all the days Adam lived were 930 years. 
and he died. The Bible doesn't record Eve's death, but it's a fair bet considering that Abraham was 930 years old at the time he died. Eve was probably already gone. But here's the point. God gave Adam and Eve clear instruction. He gave them clear consequences for disobedience. They will die. And in in Genesis chapter 5, verse 5, we see it came to pass, and he died. What Adam and Eve failed to remember is this, that every every stroke of God's word is true. So when he says that if you eat of this tree, you'll die, he meant it. Do we see how, simple, how a simple twisting of interpretation can cause so much damage? Well, this should be an alarming uh, warning for each of us. How often do we see somebody take a passage of Scripture, flip it around, and, and use it to say something that it doesn't say at all for their own personal gain? The Bible is very clear about God's design for our eternities, for our lives, and for our relationships and communications with one another. Are we believing the right things? Are we listening to the right counsel? Finally, we see that relationships are crushed by lies, accusations, and blame. We saw a moment ago how Satan takes two statements from God and twists them into something totally untrue, all for the purpose of getting Adam and Eve to believe what he wants them to. To quote Paul Tripp, he says, Until this moment, every conversation was completely, perfectly truthful. God's words were utterly reliable and life could be built upon them. What we need to understand about lies is that they are never spoken ignorantly. If you, being ignorant of the truth, make an untrue statement, it doesn't mean you're a liar, it just means you're ignorant. And I don't mean that offensively at all. What I mean is that when a lie is spoken, the speaker knows the truth. Or at least knows that their statement is untrue. And the lie is always spoken with malicious and or selfish intent. There is no goodwill in Satan's heart and no ignorance in his mind when he lied to Adam and Eve. He knew what he was saying was untrue and he spoke from a malice heart. But claiming ignorance doesn't always render you guiltless. I'm sure Al Stevens, Jack Tornay, John Lewis and Hal Wilshire really had no idea what was going on in China. For all they knew, China could have been planning to demolish the Great Wall. But they didn't know. They at least knew that their statements, their stories were not based on truth. And if we look at the intent of their hearts, the reason why they told this whole story, we find them guilty of selfishness. Yeah, it's a story fabricated, ignorant of the truth. They didn't know one way or another, but they did it with selfish intent for personal gain and to save their own skin, and they are guilty of their consequences. This is different than let's say the, the movie The Lion King. Okay, there's a scene where Timon, Pumbaa, and Simba are lying in a field at night, gazing up at the stars in the sky, and Pumbaa asks each of them what they think those twinkling lights are in the sky. Timon answers first and says, I know exactly what they are. They're fireflies. Now, did Timon make an untrue statement? Yes, he did. Was his statement born out of maliciousness or selfishness? No. So it wasn't a lie. He just didn't know what he was talking about. Satan lied out of a malicious heart. The Colorado reporters lied out of a selfish heart. Timon simply made an untrue statement out of pure, innocent ignorance. There's a difference. 
Next, we see the accusations and blame. I have to imagine that as God questioned Adam and Eve, he must have felt like the father of a couple of toddlers. I'm reminded of a, couple, of a time a couple years ago when my boys were playing in their room and things got a little rough, as they do with boys. And not surprisingly, a picture frame gets knocked off the wall and the glass shatters. I come in and when I ask them who did it, they both answered, he did. I didn't do it, he did. Now one of them is telling the truth. One of them is lying. After I spent some time questioning them, my youngest son finally admitted to it. Fast forward a few days ago, this same son was playing in the living room and uh, he, 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 he holds his pee for too long. And he gets to a point where he can't hold it anymore. He can't make it to the bathroom, so he relieves himself right there in front of the wide open living room window. When I discovered it a little while later, he immediately said, he did it. Not me, he did it. Let's, let's backtrack about a year and a half ago. Uh, for about an hour, Melody and the boys are playing in the backyard while I was in the garage, and some of y'all have heard this story. When we come in, we discovered that the bathroom sink had been plugged. The faucet, both hot and cold, had been left on and running full power. The sink overflowed, and the bathroom, bathroom closet, hallway, hallway closet, their room, our room, both closets in our room, the living room, and the den all flooded in just an hour. When questioned, my oldest son immediately said, it was me, I did it. I'm sure in those comparisons you kind of get an idea of who's the typical liar in our family. But it's okay. The sad thing is that this kind of behavior is just as prevalent, if not more so, among adults as it is children. Paul Tripp shows us how when God questions Adam, he is quick to accuse Eve. He does not stand with her, protect her, intercede, advocate, or plead for her. I want to say that again. Husbands, listen. He does not stand with her, protect her, intercede, advocate, or plead for her. Husbands, these are our responsibilities to our wives before God. And Adam failed at this, and we fail all too often as well. Now what's more is that Adam assigns blame to God himself for creating Eve. God questions him, and he says, The woman whom you gave me, you gave her to me, God. You created her. She gave me of the tree, and I ate. This is your fault. This is her fault, and I am just a victim. How often does that happen, do you think, in our lives? Our circumstances get against us. We allow ourselves to make bad decisions, and when we have to face the consequences for those decisions, we blame God for the bad circumstances. Likewise, we see that Eve accepts no responsibility for her actions and lays it all on the serpent. <laughs> so one day recently, I think just last week, a colleague at work reaches out to me for help on an account that he's working on. At that moment, I'm doing about 17 things at once. So I briefly researched and quickly advised him. He quickly took action based on my advice. 
turns out my advice was wrong. So his action was wrong. But because I'm his senior, the responsibility of correcting him falls on me. Correcting and training. I discover there's no mention in his notes of my advice. There is no record at all. It could have been very easy for me to say, hey man, uh, this was wrong. You made the wrong call on this. You need to fix this. It would have been very easy for me to lay all the responsibility on his shoulders and wipe my hands clean. How Christ-like would that have been? What damage do you think that would have caused to my working relationship with that guy? How about damage between my relationship with my boss? Damage between my relationship with Jesus? Fortunately, this is one of the times I did something right. And I called him up, explained, hey, this is what happened. It's totally on me. I told you wrong. I don't know what I was looking at when I told you that, but I was wrong, and I take full responsibility. It doesn't always go this way, though. Uh, all too often, when the full weight of our sins come barreling towards us, like little toddlers, we quickly look for anyone else to shift the blame to, myself included. The temptation's there, and the root of this behavior can find its beginning in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, it's clear that the the damage the tongue can cause in the war of words is extensive. When we challenge God's authority and question his word, believe in lies, lie ourselves, and cast accusations and blames at others, we do not represent Christ in this world as we ought. We represent Satan, which is what he wants. I won't read it to you, but James chapter 3 gives us a, a vivid picture of the tongue and the damage that it can cause when used wrongly. James likens it to the bit in the mouth of a horse or the small rudder of a ship and explains and shows us how the tongue controls the entire body and determines the course of our lives. And with it, we can either bless or curse, but if used for cursing, the destruction can be great. So finally, now let's take a look at the choice in the war of words. We have seen how this war began we have seen how it causes so much damage. The only question left to answer is what will our own choices be? And believe me, there is a choice to be made. Adam and Eve chose to distrust and disobey God. They chose to turn on each other. Satan tempted them, yes, he sure did, but he did not force their hand. They bear the guilt of their own sin. We know this because God cast them out of the garden like he casted Satan out of heaven. We can choose to follow God's design. It's hard, I know. But we can do it. If you don't believe me, ask Daniel. Ask Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego. Ask Jesus. In that quiet moment, in that quiet, still moment, right before we speak, we have a choice in how we will do it. Paul Tripp describes this choice in terms of being image bearers. And ask, who will we image in our words? We, we are indeed image bearers, but the question is, will we image Christ or Satan as we speak to each other? Proverbs 9 describes this choice as two paths, the, the, as the way of wisdom and the way of folly. And as Pastor Brian said in the uh, Proverbs study that we're going through this week, uh, he showed us how one of the major themes that runs through Proverbs is the contrast between the wise and the foolish. And it, and it has 
a lot of it is tied up in how we speak to one another. If you study the book of Proverbs, which I hope that you are this month, you'll see that Solomon says of wisdom that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. But describes foolishness as lacking wisdom, lacking morality, lacking humility, lacking control of the tongue, having no fear of God, and it's the path of which ultimately leads to death. Without fear and reverence of the Lord, who holds our eternity in the balance, and knowledge of his Holy One, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again to pay for the sins of our words, we will certainly find death for eternity. What's interesting is that both Satan and Adam and Eve desired wisdom, but they had no fear and no reverence of God. Both wanted to be like God, but both ultimately found death. Now, I'm not going to dictate to anybody the right and wrong way to speak to one another. I'm only sharing what Jesus has shown me as I studied for this lesson uh, through the Bible and through Paul Tripp's book. In fact, speaking to others in a way that aligns with God's design is not something that comes naturally to me. What was interesting is that as I read Paul's book, uh, I mean, you would think that someone who's writing a book about it knows something, is, is, is someone who's good at it, right? Uh, well, hopefully you've seen this too because you've been reading along. But uh, he struggles with the very same thing. In fact, his opening two pages in chapter 2 is all about a massive failure that he had with his children. And I realized from that that this is something that doesn't come naturally to any of us. That was lost with Adam and Eve. And that's why we need Jesus. Now for me, there are two very specific people with which I struggle with the most. They're not in this room, so Cliff and Susan, y'all can relax. Uh, they're my children, my sons. Now, I'm sure that doesn't come as a surprise to some people, you know, parents struggling with their children. But let me just give you a relationship uh, or uh, a glimpse into our relationship for a moment. So I want you to imagine a Formula One race car. Cliff knows where I'm going with this, I think. This is a vehicle that's capable of over 1,400 horsepower, 0 to 60 in as low as 1.6 seconds, and top speeds as high as 258 miles an hour. At the start of the race, a signal is given, and 20 of these supercars launch to 60 miles an hour in less than two seconds as they race to a top speed of over 250. That's what my boys are like. Zero to 60 in less than two seconds, and 250 miles an hour from the moment they wake up until the moment they go to sleep. Me? I am what I drive. An old diesel truck that goes zero to 60 in 30 minutes, and it only after being on the road for hours does it really wake up, and by the time it does, it's time to go back to sleep. I'm sure you can imagine the two don't really always mix well. There's some friction that gets created there. Think about this. The average cost of an F1 car is $12.2 million. And when it wrecks, it's usually due to something small, but results in a total loss because of its high speeds. Now, I don't have any idea what spending $12.2 million on anything is like, much less a car. But I can assure you that when my boys get upset, it is as if a $12.2 million car just crashed. It is almost always due to something small, but to them, 
is a total loss. And over the last five years of being a father, I've learned that I have some pet peeves. A few. One of them is when my boys cry. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against shedding tears. I'm a grown man, and I cried last week. But with them, kids as they are, it's almost always over something that means nothing. And I'll be transparent. My responses usually uh, do not meet God's design here. I won't get into the gritty details, but it usually goes something like this. You are acting like a baby. You need to stop your blubbering. You need to man up, grow up, toughen up, buck up, on and on and on. Not some of my proudest moments. That's just a mild example, uh, but I won't get to anything dirtier because it's, you know, kind of painful. Uh, but these kind of responses don't measure up to God's design for my relationship with my sons. In fact, I know it doesn't because Ephesians 6, 4 says, uh, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, there are, of course, many applications for that passage, but the short and sweet of it is, is this, is that my job as a father is to build my sons up in a way that honors Christ and not to tear them down in a way that honors Satan. Let me give you an example. So this past year, shortly after Thanksgiving, it was the middle of the week sometime, Melody and the boys are just getting home from school. She teaches at the same school that they go to. I work from home, so I'm already there. And my oldest son bursts into the house, sobbing like someone just ran over his puppy. Now, he doesn't have a puppy. Uh, but remember, my boys plus crying equals pet peeve. So I'm instantly annoyed because I know that it has to be because his younger brother has been picking on him because the younger brother's a bully, the older brother is you know, kind of sensitive, and that's just usually the way it goes. But I have learned in situations like these to ask what's wrong before jumping to conclusions. And it turns out that there's this school Christmas play coming up, and that he actually has a really good speaking part in the play as the innkeeper. And he's got several lines to memorize, and he says, tears, you know, pouring down from his eyes, voice quivering like an earthquake. He says, Daddy, I'm scared. I'm, I'm scared of all the people that are going to be looking at me. I'm scared I'm not going to get this right. Uh, I'm scared people are going to laugh at me. Well, you recognize what this is, right? This stage fright. I understand this. I'm up here. I have stage fright. So, but in this time, uh, unlike my usual times, instead of giving him the man up speech, I give him a hug, I pull him up into my lap, and I tell him, buddy, I know that it's scary, but you've got this. You've been practicing with mommy every single day, and you've been practicing with your class at school every single day, and you know your stuff. You've got your lines memorized perfectly. You've got the personality of this character nailed down perfectly. You're going to do great, and I'm going to be there to see it a little bit different, right? And what was amazing to me is his father was to watch him get up on that stage in front of hundreds of people knowing that he's so scared. I mean, you can see it in his eyes. And I witnessed him overcome that fear and recite his part with absolute perfection. And there is nothing like it. 
And then there's a little bit of a, a payoff here because as we are leaving the house tonight to, to come to church, my, my son tells me, Daddy, you got this. You got this. So hopefully you can see the difference between the foolish way and the wise way for a father to speak to his son. Now, the, the great theologian Rodney Atkins sings about the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness in his gospel song, Watching You. That's, that's a joke. He's a country singer. But the song starts out singing about him and his son driving along in his truck. And the dad has to slam on his brakes for whatever reason. Uh, and his son's orange soda spills all over his lap. And the song goes on to sing. Well, then my four-year-old said a four-letter word that started with S. And I was concerned. So I said, now son, where did you learn to talk like that? And he said... I have been watching. See, I told you I'm not against crime. He said, I have been watching you, Dad. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be just like you. Eat all my food. Grow as tall as you are. We've got cowboy boots, camo pants. Yeah, we're just alike, ain't we, Dad? I want to do everything that you do. So I have been watching you. The song goes on to say, so we, we get back home, and I went to the barn. I bowed my head and I prayed real hard and said, Lord, please help me help my stupid self. And then this side of bedtime later that night, turning on my son's Scooby-Doo nightlight, he crawls out of bed and gets down on his knees. He closes his eyes and folds his little hands and he speaks to God like he was talking to a friend. And, <clears throat> and he said, now son, where did you learn to pray like that? He said, I have been watching you, Dad. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you and eat all my food and grow as tall as you are. We like fixing things and holding Mama's hand. And yeah, we're just alike, ain't we, Dad? I want to do everything that you do. So I have been watching you. Now, I don't know what Rodney Atkins' walk with Christ is like. Google says that he's a Christian. Maybe so. Nonetheless, the point is this, that it's, it's an eye-opening illustration of the war on words and foolish uh, versus wise ways to talk. And I am reminded as a father that I am being watched by my kids and I am teaching them by my own example the right and wrong way to speak to others and to God. And likewise, we need to remember that we as Christians are being watched by others and we are teaching them by our own example the right and wrong way to speak to others and to God. Now, Mel and I fostered our kids for several months before we adopted them. And our oldest son came to us with quite a few issues to work through. Now, I know, I'm picking on him tonight. One night, he was having one of his inexplicable tantrums, and there's no way to explain it. But it escalated into him slapping me in the face over and over and over and over again. And I, I tried everything I could to get him to calm down and to stop, but the only thing that got him to stop was to say, buddy, I love you. I love you. I love you. And these are words that he probably never heard before in his life. And that's Christ-like love right there. 
to look into the eyes of the one you love and tell them that you love them even while they're hurting. That love only comes from Christ. I am not capable of that kind of love, but Christ who lives in me is. I mean, as Jesus hung from the cross, stakes driven through his hands and feet, his skin ripped from his back, thorns dug into his scalp, he's beaten, broken, mocked, and ridiculed. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Christ is our example, and he is our power. We are weak without him, and we need his grace. It turns out this is a good match, because as Christ says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So which choice will we make? Will we be image bearers of Christ, or image bearers of Satan? Will we walk and talk in the way of wisdom, or will we talk in the way of foolishness? Are we even sure that we're on the right path? Maybe we should ask ourselves a few questions from Paul Tripp's book to help identify where our hearts are. Like, are there places where your words challenge the authority of God? Do your words reveal places where you have bought into an interpretation of life that's different from the Lord's as revealed in Scripture? Has your communication been infected with Satan's lie that the things that you need for life can be found outside of Christ? We should, ask ourselves, or we should ask ourselves those questions tonight. And as I close, let me close with a few or a couple passages uh, that I think will encourage us. Paul says in Philippians verse four, chapter 4, verse 8, that finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And as we think about this war on words that, and this struggle between imaging God and imaging Satan, let's think about the words of James chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Let's pray. Dear God, we, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. And uh, we thank you um, for, your, for, for your sacrifice. Without that, we would have no reason to be here. And uh, I pray that um, you will use each of us as empty vessels uh, to do your will. I, I am not worthy to just stand up here and, and talk to anybody about how to speak to others. Uh, but you are absolutely worthy to be used by me and by us in any way that you see fit. So I pray that you will use each of us to advance your gospel, advance your kingdom in, in this neighborhood and in this city and in our world. And uh, let us be a, a light that shines so bright on the top of this hill that nobody can ignore it. We love you, Lord. It's in your name. Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.